A deep, respectful, reverent spirit towards God is the foundation of the wise life, and our goal as parents needs to be to help our naive children become godly without being scarred in the school of experience. Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, continues our series on Your Kids and Jesus by introducing us to the Ben Franklin of ancient Israel. Dave? You know, usually when you think of a wise man, you think of someone with a probably gray hair and a long gray beard. And, and what we mean is that he's a wise man, that he's experienced all these things in life, and he's made all these kinds of mistakes that you can make. And therefore, now in the school of experience, he's become wise. Usually, we think of wisdom as a word that applies to those that are older. One of the great things about God's word is that the word wisdom, the Lord wants to apply it to our kids. We've been talking in our series about Jesus and our kids. We've been talking about grace is for kids the last couple of times together. This morning, I want to talk to you about wisdom is for kids. If you're a dad and mom, if, if, if you say, well, Dave, as I look at the word of God, what's the one book as I'm raising my kids that I really need to get under my belt? What is that book? And it's going to be the book of Proverbs. And I want you to turn there this morning because it's God's handbook for skillful living. And the thrust of the book of Proverbs is that he wants to put an old head on young shoulders. doesn't want our kids to have to learn the wisdom of life by going out there and making a whole lot of mistakes, messing things up, eventually coming back and being all scarred up. And now that they've finally learned what's the right way to do things, it's much better in life to be able to have someone that knows how to do something to teach you how to do it. When I was, uh, many years ago, when I was directing my dad's children's camp at Word of Life, I got to work with a guy that was the deputy inspector of the New York police force. His name was Connie Jensen. The deputy inspector was the highest position that you could get without uh, being elected. He actually earned all these spots. And, and uh, when I was about 19, Connie directed the business side of the camp, and I directed the, uh, the spiritual and the, and the counseling side and all that. And we got to work real closely together. It gave me an opportunity to have an older guy that had really gone to the top of the, the most powerful police force in the country, probably in the world in a lot of ways, and to find out how you, how you learn things. I'll never forget one day while we were uh, spending time in his office late at night after the, the work schedule had kind of come down, I said, Connie, tell me, what's the secret? You know, how did you become successful? He said, Dave, if you want to be successful, what you want to do is you want to find out someone that knows how to do it. You want to find someone that actually has accomplished what you want to accomplish. Go and get them and ask them exactly how you do what you want to do. And do exactly what they said. Those were wise words. In other words, what what Connie was saying is... That if you want to figure out how to do something in life, whatever it might be, find out someone that does it really, really well, and then ask them how to do it, and then be obedient to what they say. Now, as we open up to the book of Proverbs, it starts out like this. We have the title of the book in chapter of Proverbs 1, verse 1. We start out with the title. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. The word proverb tells you what you're going to get when you get to chapter 10, 1 and following. In fact, chapters 1 through 9 is introduction. So as you're getting into it as a mom and dad, chapters 1 through 9 will whet the appetite for your kids to help them to get motivated to study the book. If you're a child, you want to you listen to those first nine chapters because they'll kind of lay a foundation 
foundation, giving you the motivation to plunge in. When you get to chapter 10, you start having all these two-liners and sometimes three-liners, all these proverbs. And what they are, they're, they're short um, and you might say capsules of life experience. And you'll have all these little, like in English, we have Proverbs, you know, Ben Franklin has given us some Proverbs. In fact, some of you can probably think of, what are some of our English Proverbs? Anybody, somebody raise your hand and tell me, what's an English Proverb that you can think of? From our culture, what are some of the Proverbs in English? Early Sunday morning. Okay, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You got the picture. There's some of you that are hunters. That's a good one for you. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And you've got a powerful picture of somebody holding a bird. There's two birds that are out in the bush. And what does it mean? What does that proverb mean? It gives you a vivid picture. It encapsulates a life reality. It's better to hang on to what you have. It's better that you have some things in your possession and you want to really take care of them because those two that are out there you might not ever get. And so it encapsulates all those kinds of principles. It's better to hang on to some things that you actually have than to let go of what you have and go hunting after what you might not ever get. It's always better to remember to cut on your possession. Let's have another proverb. What's another proverb? Give a man a fish, you can feed him for a day. Teach a man how to fish, and he can fish for a lifetime. And man, you can all know what that means. And, and you see how that picture, notice how both of those are proverbs, and what they do is they give us a picture of life reality. And they, they encapsulate it in a very short, pithy way that causes us to remember it. I also want you to notice something about that, is that it's not saying that that's absolutely true in every case. In other words, sometimes you'll, you'll teach a man to fish, and he won't ever catch fish, and he won't ever take advantage of that. In other words, he actually won't listen to what you said. And so sometimes it doesn't work out that if I teach a man to fish, that he'll be able to do that for a lifetime, because sometimes the person doesn't carry that out. Sometimes the burden hand turns out not to be that valuable. And it's better to have the two in the bush. In other words, a proverb, the idea of a proverb, is it states the way life usually is. Not the way it always is. This is very important. We have promises in God's word, like in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, there's a promise. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding. In everything you do, seek to be intimate with him, and he will direct your paths. That's a promise, not a proverb. And God will always come through with that. But when you get to chapter 10 and you have these short proverbs, these two-liners, a lot of times it states just a general life principle. Like, for example, one of them. Train up a child in the way which he should go, and when he is old or when she is old, she'll not depart from it. What that's saying is usually education determines the way that a person turns out. It's just a principle. In fact, Jesus himself said, when you're old, you'll be like your teacher. It's the same kind of an idea. Does that mean that if one of my children during their 20s wanders away from the Lord, becomes a prodigal, that you can automatically say, well, Mary and Dave didn't train up their children right? That's not fair. Because that's a proverb. It states the way things usually work out, and it's a very valuable principle to learn how life usually works out. But it's a proverb, a principle, a normative statement. It doesn't state the way life always works out. 
Sometimes a wise parent trains their child and the child chooses, like the story of the prodigal son and Jesus' story, to wander away. There's another proverb in Ezekiel chapter 16 that says, like mother, like child. And that's a proverb. In other words, guys, if you're dating a woman, it's really important to go and look at what her mom looks like. If you go for Thanksgiving and you don't like her mom, you don't like her looks, you don't like her personality, then you need to take a double take in that relationship because it's a normative statement like mother, like daughter. When she, as she grows older, she'll become a lot like her mother. But aren't you thankful? Some of you ladies are probably thankful that that's not a promise. <laughs> because how many of you ladies would say, hey, in a lot of ways I'm more like my dad than like my mom? Or I'm kind of a mixture of both of them. You see, it's a general principle that's really important to us. Proverbs are important. And it's important for you to teach your children what Proverbs are saying about these normative principles. But we've got to take them into the form of literature that they are. A proverb is a short normative principle about the way life usually works. And when you get a bunch of these things internalized in your heart, it gives you so much insight into how to live your life day by day. So that's what a proverb is. And as moms and dads and as kids, Proverbs is a book that you need to devour. And all I'm going to do the next couple of weeks is kind of whet your appetite to get into the book on your own and to study these principles because wisdom is for kids. As we, ask, as we talk about Proverbs and we think about English Proverbs, who's the person that comes to mind when you mention English Proverbs? You mention English Proverbs, American Proverbs, you have Poor Richard's Almanac, and the author was Benjamin Franklin. In old Israel, if I had a bunch of old Israelites here today, and I said, I want you to name the name of the man that epitomizes um, your Israelite Proverbs, they would mention Solomon. And that's what the author of Proverbs is doing right here. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. According to 1 Kings chapter 3, we know that Solomon wrote more than 3,000 Proverbs. We also know that the queen of Sheba came to learn from his, to learn, uh, from his wisdom. We know that Wiseman, that Solomon carried on a whole dialogue, it was kind of like a renaissance during the, the 900s that Solomon ruled, where wisdom Wisdom teachers from all over the ancient Near East were coming. In fact, when you study the Proverbs, you find out that there's a lot of connection to the wisdom literature like this in, in Egypt, a lot of connection to the wisdom literature in Mesopotamia. This is important for us as believers. One of the things we want you to learn is that this, the Lord Jesus opens us to all the wisdom there is in the world. All the wisdom, the insights into reality belong to us. We don't have to be afraid. So if you're in a psychology class and a psychology teacher teaches you some things that they've observed about life and they've done experimentation that proves some things, you're going to find out that if it's real, if it's true, it will line up directly with the Word of God. And that's one of the things that Solomon wants us to understand. The wisdom literature opens us up instead of narrowing us down. Some believers don't open themselves up to all the revelation that God wants to give us through normal means, like natural means. And God's written revelation, his special revelation is opening ourselves to that. So as believers, we shouldn't be afraid of any truth, any reality, any insight into what's going to last which is what truth is, is eventually going to line up directly with the Word of God. And Solomon's a great example of that, is that he interacted with the wise teachers of Egypt. He interacted with the wise teachers of uh, Babylon. Let me give you an illustration of that. Like uh, in child raising, they found out that there's basically four kinds of parents. One of them is an authoritarian parent, and they're rigid, rigid. 
and they, ha- they have all kinds of rules, but they don't ever give an explanation for their rules. And they're very harsh in the way that they implement the obedience in their home. They're an authoritarian parent. What kind of children do you think they produce? Generally, the normative thing is they produce rebellious kids, kids that want to get away from them. Often it leads to kind of a, a stifling of their creativity. There's another ch- kind of a parent, which is a permissive parent. And that's a parent that just kind of hang, you know, just lets the child, no boundaries, no rules, just the opposite of the authoritarian parent. The permissive parent is a parent that's just letting everything hang loose and, they, and just allowing the child to express themselves. And there's no boundaries. And what kind of a child do you think that produces? Obviously, it produces a child that gets hurt out there in the school of experience, and they don't learn how to live wisely because there aren't any boundaries. There's a third kind of parent that they talk about, which is one of the worst kinds of parents, is the uninvolved parent, the parent that just never shows up. And a lot of our kids today are raised with uninvolved parents. Those of you that are school teachers, one of the roles that you need to play, one of the reasons why we have Awana, one of the reasons why we have Promised Land, one of the reasons why we have a child care, is because we live in a culture where there are parents not, that are uninvolved because they don't, they, they, they're just dedicated to other things. And we can be, as born-again believers, we can jump in there and we can be an aid, we can be of help. What do you think happens with a, with a child raised in an uninvolved parent? My kind of an extreme statement. In the Victorian era, era, parents would just give their kids, they'd come and let their kids see them once in a while, and then their parents would just, their, their, the kids would be taken with their nannies, and their nannies would raise them. The parents would be totally uninvolved. Like Winston Churchill's daddy never even saw him. He was a brilliant um, cricket player. His dad never saw him play. His dad never came to his graduations. His dad would write him letters saying, your mom loves you, and would never say that as a daddy that he loved him. And that's the Winston Churchill was raised with a totally uninvolved dad, and his dad died when he was a young man, just as his dad was getting ready to become the prime minister of England. His father died of syphilis because he had had a kind of a, a, bad, rela- a bad relationship in Europe and an immoral relationship. So Winston Churchill was raised with a totally uninvolved parent, daddy. His mama was totally involved, but very permissive in a lot of ways. And yet by God's grace, he overcame that, which shows you that it doesn't always pan out, that we have individual choice. But Winston Churchill's dad is a powerful example of a dad that was totally uninvolved. Now, I've been teaching you about the monastery parent. That would be the authoritarian parent. And the lady fair parent, which is a permissive parent. And what the scripture teaches us is what psychologists will tell you today. If you go to a, a good parent training, they're going to tell you we need authoritative parents. And authoritative parents are parents that set proper boundaries that are true to reality. They teach their kids. They model for their kids. In other words, they live out the standards. That's the most important thing that they're trying to teach. They leave room for discussion. They're reasonable with their kids. And they also use discipline to curb the desires of rebellion. And so if you're in a really good class today in psychology and parent dynamics, they're going to teach you about authoritative parents. That's the good parent. 
They're going to teach you against authoritarian parent, against permissive parents, and against uninvolved parents, which lines up with exactly what the Proverbs was teaching 900 years before Christ. And it's an example of the fact that we as believers can go and we can spoil the Egyptians. We can learn from unbelievers. And I want us as a church family to be, have open hearts but always evaluating all the things that we learn from the standard of God's word. We look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. One of the things that really concerns me, though, is that Solomon is supposed to be the wisest man that ever lived. And the scripture says that. In the Old Testament, at least, he's the wisest being other than Jesus Christ that ever lived. And yet the sad thing about his life is that if you study his life in the Old Testament, he gets totally involved with immorality. He gets... At times, he gets involved in drunkenness, and he starts to worship idols. So right at the, at the top of Solomon's career, he blows all of his wisdom principles. In fact, if you were to ask me, do you think Solomon was a good daddy? I would say no. He was a horrible daddy. In fact, his children end up, his son turns up being so arrogant and wouldn't listen to advice that the whole kingdom divides. So one of the things we're faced with is here we have the writings of a man who collected these Proverbs, had the school of wisdom, was able to teach everyone else, but he never lived it himself. And I want you to learn something about this. Because we have an idea that if you can teach it, like if Dave can teach it, and if what he says is really true to the word of God, then automatically Dave will live it. That's not, not the case. This is a very important thing. Solomon shows us that you can have it all in your head. You can speak it with your mouth, but it might not necessarily come out in your life. For example, some of my teachers that taught me the book of Proverbs, in fact, some of my teachers that took me verse by verse in Hebrew through the book of Proverbs, some of those guys taught me brilliantly against, the immor- against immorality. They taught me very skillfully, for example, in Proverbs chapter 5 about to drink water only from the cistern of your wife, only from the joy of your wife, just like I taught you a few weeks ago. And yet some of those guys, two of my teachers that taught me that got involved in immorality. So having the wisdom in their head, being able to speak with their mouths, didn't necessarily get into their life. That's real important to remember. And Solomon's reminding us of that. You say, well, Dave, then we shouldn't listen to what he said because his life was all screwed up and he didn't live what he said, so what he said wasn't true. That's not true either. A lot of evangelicals, for example, uh, a writer in evangelicalism will write a book and it has great insight in the word of God. And lots of people are blessed by it and a lot of people are, are, are nurtured in godliness by it. But then the guy falls into an immoral affair or he turns out to be a thief or something like that. We automatically say, well, throw the book out because look what the guy did. That doesn't follow. It doesn't mean like what he wrote in the book or what she wrote in the book might really be true, the word of God. It might really be true. And it will bless people. And the fact that they fell, the fact that they didn't live consistent with what they wrote is not a good teaching tool, but it doesn't nullify the truthfulness of what they said. This is very, very important because in the book of Proverbs, Solomon didn't live the life of wisdom, but you shouldn't conclude that what he wrote wasn't true because it is true. In fact, Solomon's truth broke his life, and I believe that probably when he wrote Ecclesiastes as an old man, he came back to this foundation. 
It's also a warning. It reminds me, first of all, that I can't just feel if I have it in my head, I'm going to live it in my life. I can't just say, well, if someone doesn't live it, well, then I'm not going to listen to what they say because I need to evaluate what they say upon the revealed word of God. And finally, it's a great warning to all of us as parents. And it's a great warning to all the kids that are here. We can know this stuff. We can teach this stuff. We can be raised in Midlothian Bible Church. That doesn't mean as we run the course of our life at different phases that we're not going to fall into foolish living. So Solomon is a great, great warning. In fact, I believe that Solomon came from heaven because I believe that Solomon's heart really was filled with the Spirit. I believe he is with the Lord. But I think if Solomon was here, he would say, I plead with you, listen, I've already tried everything. I've already messed my life up. I've already taken every bad angle you can take. So listen to me because I'm spelling it out for you, which is basically what he does in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes tells you all the bad turns you can make and why you shouldn't make it. Proverbs tell you the right turns to make and why you need to make those right turns. So that's the Proverbs of Solomon, the, king of, the son of David, the king of Israel. What's the purpose of the book? In verse 2, this should be our goal as parents. Every one of us and as kids, this is God's goal for you. He wants you to know wisdom. He wants you to know skillful living. And he wants you to know discipline or instruction. The word for discipline means positive instruction and also negative reproof. He wants you to discern. The idea, he wants you to understand the words of understanding. There's a play on words in this verse. And this is the purpose of the whole book of Proverbs. And and this, this writer, every one of these words, he's really to the point, and every one of these words is really important. Let me talk to you first of all about to know. It relates to what I've been talking about. In our culture, we feel as Americans that you know something when you can regurgitate it on a test or if you can answer a multiple choice thing or you can fill in the blank. We have an idea the person knows. In fact, a lot of you kids, if you can give the right answers on a test, then you know it. The Hebrews didn't use the word no just for what you had in your head. The word no just begins in your head. You do To learn something, you've got to get it into your head. But you don't really know it until you can get it out into your hands, until you can get it on your feet. There's a bunch of you that have been my friends for years, like they're in, the, in, in big industry, and you are in, in building and construction. And you'll often tell me, like you'll tell me about a young buck that comes in, they're an engineer, they have a degree, an engineering degree. And they come into your plant and the supervisor says, we have this project, we need to get this thing online, this needs to work. And so the engineer goes into their office and they can draw out the plans. They know in their head, they know all the math, they know all the physics, they know all the schematic drawings, they can do it all. The only problem is they just know it in their head. If you ask them to walk out in the plant, take a group of men and women, women and make it happen, they can't do it. The Hebrews would say that the person doesn't really know until they can make it happen in real life. By the way, in American industry, that's what, Amer- what makes America great. It's not just people that have it in their head. But there's a whole bunch of you that live right here in the Midlothian area and the surrounding area that have real knowledge. 
because you not only have the idea in your head, but you can get it out of your hands. You can get it out into your feet. You can get it to happen in real life. And in industry, if it doesn't happen in real life, you go bankrupt. You got to produce cement. You got to generate electricity. You got to produce steel. If it doesn't happen, if it's just an idea, you're bankrupt. The same thing is true in your real life. You got to know in your head, but then it's got to internalize. And I like to use the word for Hebrew knowledge. I like to use the word not knowledge because we often use it in English for our head. I like to use the word internalize because it gets totally into your being and it flows out into your hands. Now, what do you need to internalize? You need to know wisdom. And like I started out with this morning, wisdom is usually one of those words we reserve for old people. And we also have a kind of a nebulous idea, well, it's someone that, you know, I can ask complicated questions to and they'll be able to explain it. But that's not really what the Hebrew word for wisdom means. In fact, it's actually a very, very practical word. It would be used like this. For example, when I came to Midlothian, I knew nothing about carpentry. I had no idea what was inside that wall. But when I moved here, a bunch of you turned out to be real practical guys. And I wasn't here a few months before I learned what was inside a sheetrock wall. In fact, I learned how to frame. In fact, in the old Overlook property, we were constantly tearing off the roof, tearing down the walls, and framing it up. When we came to build my own house, a friend, Bill Brown, helped Mary and I and Wallace and several others helped us to build our house. And we did it ourselves. I'll never forget, you know, when we were framing up the, the outside walls, we're putting up the studs and, and Bill's throwing the hammer in and, and nailing down. It was when the old days before we kind of stood it up and then toe-nailed it in. And I was figuring out, you know, I said, man, Bill, how in the world did you get that hammer in here? And he says, well, you swing it in at an angle. I said, man, I'm wrestling just to hit the head of the nail. You know, don't tell me about swinging it in at an angle. Because I wasn't skillful as a carpenter. But I got news for you. Before we finished our house, I could be putting up the trim and I could take a finishing nail and I could drive the finishing nail with a hammer and I didn't hit the finishing molding. Because I was really skillful after doing it hour after hour after hour. I mean, I could throw the hammer this way. I could throw it this way. I could throw it in an angle. I could throw the hammer in many different ways. And I could drive a nail, a big nail in with two hits. I got to be really skillful after doing that for hour after hour. And the word that's used for wisdom here in Old Hebrew is used for the skill of a carpenter. It means the skill to be able to build a house. That's one of the meanings of the word wisdom. Another place that it's used is in sailing. I'll never forget when I was in high school, I went down to, to Nassau with my mom and dad. And it, we were in this beautiful bay, and uh, we were staying with a Christian family. They had a daughter who had a sailboat. And the daughter said, you know, would you, you, know, you want to use a sailboat? I said, sure, that'd be great. <clears throat> so I took the sailboat out, and, and I remember that the lifeguard said to me, you know, do you really know how to sail this sailboat? I said, oh, yes, man, I've sailed on Scroon Lake up in, the up, in upstate New York. I'm really great. Well, there was a big barrier reef there. The waves were rolling over the barrier reef about eight feet high. I brought the sailboat back about three hours later. I had turned that sailboat over about eight times. Man, my dad sat on the bow of that boat, and man, I turned in the wind. The wind caught the sailboat, dumped him right into the water. He disappeared into the depths of the Atlantic Ocean. I'm thinking, oh no, I killed the international director of Word of Life. What's going to happen to me? He finally came you know, regurgitating to the top. And uh, I w- I'm not a skillful sailor. The next day, the girl that we were sailing with said, hey, you want to go for a sail? She went out. 
She maneuvered out through the coral reef. She knew every single name of the knots, of the ropes, of the, of the, of the sails. She had names for the wind. She had names for the current. She's like some of you that are here. She was an accomplished, skillful sailor. I mean, you might as well have had a motor on the boat. She was a wise sailor. That's what the word means. She was a skillful sailor. I'm a foolish sailor. And Proverbs is saying, I want you to internalize the skill to be able to build your life. I want to internalize the skill to be able to sail through life safely. Now, you don't have to be a carpenter, and you don't have to sail. If you want to get through life, just don't build houses and don't go sailing. Get someone else to do it. But every one of you in this room need to become skillful in the way you live your life. Because every one of you are right in the midst of living your life. And the Proverbs wants to help you to internalize the skill to be able to do that in a way that will lead to the right results. The next word there is the word discipline. It's a dirty word in English. None of us in English want to believe that you have to be disciplined. In fact, some of you that are school teachers, you say, man, if only we could get these kids to be disciplined. And one of the things that adds salt and light is we need to return the idea to discipline. Because some of us have the idea, and it's kind of a new educational idea, that you can learn things without ever having to be disciplined. And I want to share with you the way that that works. And for example, that was my basic approach to playing the piano. When I was seven years of age, I decided that I didn't need to have a teacher because I was very creative. In fact, my brother Don was a genius on the piano. It would just happen with me. And so I decided that I would learn to play the piano and that I would just learn to play the piano without any discipline. I would just learn in trial and error. And I want to share with you the result of that. You see, when I was seven, I just went over to the piano. And I don't need any teachers. I don't need to have any scales. I just need to be able to play. So this is the result. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you might think that that was brilliant, modern, right out of Juilliard in New York, but it isn't. It's nothing, because I don't know how to play the piano. And the reason I don't know how to play the piano is that I never disciplined myself. I never submitted to a teacher. I never listened to what they said. I never took their assignments and practice. And any skill there is in life, in music, in athletics, in literature, in spiritual things, anything you do in life, if you're going to become skillful, you have to submit to discipline. And discipline, one thing in our church family, I want discipline to not be a negative thing. It's not just spanking. In a few weeks, I'm going to talk to you about discipline for kids and try to talk to us about moms and dads, about how we discipline our kids skillfully. But here we can begin. The word discipline that's used here is not just negative reproof. The word discipline in the book of Proverbs, in fact, all of chapters 1 through 9, if you want an example of discipline, all of chapters 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 9, in Hebrew, is all a discipline form of literature. It's that kind of literature, just like it's talking about here. And what you're going to find out is that the parent is given very insightful instruction, very powerful insight into the way that life works. And he's motivating the students. So in the Hebrew, discipline is positive instruction. And the only time that there's negative reproof 
It's when the instruction's not followed, and there's only physical punishment when there's really outright rebellion. And so contrary to what some people teach about what the Bible says or what some people think the Bible says, the Bible's not just saying that this old-fashioned beating with a belt is the way you do it because the wise teachers of Proverbs spent a ton of time pouring good information, good instruction, good wise planning into their children, explaining why which is one of the things that's going to be so important. So the, the proverb, the purpose, it wants us as moms and dads, it wants our kids as well to internalize skillful living, which is going to come through discipline. The second part of the verse talks about that you're going to have to use your head to be able to do this. You've got to discern the words of understanding. And in chapter 6, it's, I mean chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about to discern a proverb, a figure of speech, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. That's the verse that explains this second purpose. God doesn't always put all of his cookies on the lower shelf. Sometimes God makes you work for it a little bit. And in this case, it means you're going to have to think. As you're studying the book of Proverbs, at first, they just seem obvious. It seems like any idiot could understand that. But the Proverbs need to be meditated on, and then they explode in your life. Sometimes they don't just come easy. And the writer of Proverbs is saying that that he's going to use different kinds of literature. He's going to use like Proverbs, which are the two letters. He's going to tell you some riddles. He's going to give you some later on in chapter 30, for example. He's going to give you, here's three things, shape four things that are mysterious and wonderful. And you've got to go through this riddle and figure out what the three things are and the fourth thing that's even more wonderful than the three. I want to challenge you as, 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 we're, as we're working with our kids. You want to challenge them to think about God's word and learn the different kinds of literature in God's word. Now in verse 3, he goes back to explaining to us what to know wisdom and instruction is. And this is what a young person, this is what your kids will get out of the book. The young person will receive the discipline of being able to make wise plans. They'll be able to understand righteousness, what is right, and what is just, and what is fair. This is really important. The young person that really internalizes the book of Proverbs is going to learn, contrary to what our culture often says, the wise person teaches standards, things that are right, things that are true to life reality. In our context, it's the covenant revelation of God and his will to us. The word righteousness, that first word that the King James translates to justice, you might have right in the NIV, it's the word word for God's standards. In fact, it's a word that's often used for weights and measures. It says that in the ancient world, they would use a scale. They'd put weights on one side and you'd put your produce on the other. And they would say that these stones, these weights that are put on this side of the scale are right. They conform to the standard. And that's the word that they use in a non-spiritual context. So what we do as parents, we teach our children what conforms to God's standards. Things aren't just up in the air, but there is a right way of living your life. Second of all, you've got to learn how to apply it. The next word that's used there is to be able to make the judgment in how you apply God's standards. And the third word is a word that means you do it with, with straightness. You do it with fairness. And so there's a blending, these three words. We teach our children what God's standards are. We teach them how to apply them, but we also don't do it arbitrarily. We do it with fairness and with grace. What do you as a parent need to give to your kids? In verse 4, it tells us what we as parents can give to our kids. We can give aroma. This is a word that's in in the chapter 3 of Genesis. Now, the serpent was more subtle, and it uses this word. It's a word that means to be crafty. Usually, it's a word that's used negatively. 
This is very important. I want all of you Christian moms and dads to listen to me. A lot of you have the idea that you're trying to raise a naive child. And your idea is you're going to protect them from all of these influences. You say, well, Dave, you're always talking to us about raising worldly wise but innocent kids. You know, I don't want to do that. That's going to hurt my kids. It's going to destroy my kids. No, it won't. And you say, Dave, and it doesn't make any difference what I think. It doesn't make any difference at all. It's what God thinks. And what God is saying in the book of Proverbs here is real important. A lot of times you read, well, God wanted Adam and Eve just to be naive. He didn't want them to know good and evil. No, God, his purpose for man was not for them to be naive. He didn't want them to be guilty. There's a difference between being innocent and being naive. I want all of our kids raised in our church to be innocent. I want them not to have experienced evil. You don't have to learn that it's wrong to steal by going to the Venus prison because you stole stuff. You don't have to learn that it's dumb to take drugs and get your house confiscated and your car confiscated and to lose everything you ever dreamed of having and also to be wrecking your body. It doesn't have to be that you finally learn after all that junk happened to you, hey, drugs is a bad thing. You don't have to learn in a school of hard experience. And what the writer is saying is that the book of Proverbs is telling us as parents, and he says to you kids, listen, you can become crafty. You can know what's going to happen in New York City. You can be raised in Midlothian, and we can send you the Big Apple when you're 21, and you can be exposed to cosmopolitan, you know, big media kind of propaganda. You can be exposed to all of that, that, that Wall Street will give you. You can be exposed to all that Tom Wolfe talks about in the bonfire of the vanities and not be sucked in by it and not be saying, well, oh, wow, this is such an incredible thing. You'll be able to see right through it because you're crafty. In fact, you're worldly wise. You know the way the world really is. And that's what Proverbs does. The book of Proverbs will spell out to you, this is real life. This is what New York looks like. This is what L.A. looks like. This is what the big, the big cosmopolitan areas in the ancient world look like. It's all the same. This is what the evil man will do to you. And next week, I'm going to talk about it. How do we teach our kids against drugs and gangs? How do we protect them from a life of violence? The father jumps right in there and spells it out for the kids. And it's an example of this. He doesn't want our kids, Christian kids, shouldn't be naive. They should grow from the time they're little bitty kids. They're constantly being taught. This is reality. If you make these decisions, this is what results. And one of the things you want to do, you want to expose your kids to real life. Get them involved in the ministry. One of the greatest things, you want to protect your kids from drinking too much? Have Hugh Huber over or Pat Riggin. They're right here today. Have them over to your house to eat. Maybe I'll get some meals for these guys. And just have them lay out for your kids their testimony. Let them tell you what it was like to be soused out of their gourd. Let them tell your kids what it was like. And your kids, that's how they learn. Let them learn from real life. Don't let them learn from their friends that are at the beginning. Let them learn from the people that actually lived this. And all around this room, one of the things you as, as, as mature believers need to do, you guys have all kinds of life experience, both men and women, and the Lord wants you to share your experience with the younger kids. And that way they become innocent 
They can learn from your experience. It's like we can learn from Solomon's experience, but not be scarred in the school of experience. So that's what this word means, to give craftiness, to give subtlety, to give worldly wisdom to the naive. The naive person is someone that's open to all kinds of influence. There's someone that's gullible. Proverbs 14, 15 said that the naive person opens their mouth and swallows everything. I want you to, to listen And I want you to be willing to receive truth from all sources, but I don't want you to be open-minded. I want you to be critically minded. I want you to think through what the people are telling you and and what you're hearing and what kind of a life they live and where it goes and, and what the truth is and what God's word says. It doesn't want any of our kids just to be naive. And it's a big difference between being, like I've been sharing, between being naive and being innocent. He wants the, wide, the, the, the kids to learn to give skillful living or, or craftiness to the naive, to the young person, knowledge and the ability to make wise choices. The wise person, as we close here today, you say, well, as a parent, what am I going to get out of this? As a parent, the wise person will listen. They'll increase in learning. The man that already has understanding or the man or woman that has understanding of life will be able to attain unto wise steerings. They'll be able to teach people how to steer their course through life. The word that's used there for wise counsel is the word that was often used in sailing. You'll know the ropes would be a great way to analyze it in English, presented in English. It means like that sailor I talked to you about, you know the ropes, you know how to sail the vessel. I want you to hear that as a parent, this is a real important thing. If you're a wise parent, You'll always be open to wisdom. I remember years ago when I was studying the book of Proverbs, I studied with Dr. Walkie. And Dr. Walkie had studied at Harvard University. He had gotten straight A's and Semitic studies there. We would sit on Friday. We would study the book on our own all week long. And on Friday for two hours, Mary will remember these days, I would go with about seven other guys and we would read the book of Proverbs. We'd write every single verse in Hebrew and we'd talk together about what it meant. We would compare what all the different words meant and we would look at how they were used all through the Old Testament. And we had this genius. It was like studying, you know, with Toscanini on the piano. Only this was in biblical studies. And Walkie would just, I mean, he would just go in unbelievable insight into this book. I'll never forget, after doing that for a semester, we had gone through the book. At the end of that time period, Dr. Walkie said, I feel like we've just walked into the house, and now when I look around, I can begin to understand what the book said. And I'll never forget that. He was saying, now we're just ready to study. That was a wise man. A wise man is always ready to listen. Dr. Walkie was teaching the book of Proverbs at First Baptist in a Sunday school. When I was teaching the book of Proverbs out here with a small group of Midlothian people, Dr. Walkie would always ask me when we got together again, he said, Dave, how did it go last week? Tell me how, the audio, how, the, how your group responded to you. He was always listening. And I'm thinking, like, this is idiotic. You know, you've got your, your, your head and shoulders above me. But Dr. Walkie taught me a really important thing. A really wise person always listens. They never tell you, I have it under control. I'll never forget, at exactly that time period, I was teaching the, the, the course, in a, in a, like I travel some and I teach different Bible studies. And I'll never forget, I started to teach it. At the end of, the, of my teaching the book of Proverbs, this person came up to me and says, you know, Dave, that was great, but I already have Proverbs under my belt. I know it completely. You see, I've studied it, and, you know, I've studied it maybe in Bible study fellowship or something, like, you know, whatever it was. I, I've studied it in my church, and, and I don't need to study Proverbs anymore. And I couldn't think about it. I, it just hit me in the face with the kind of, like, I could ask a person, well, tell me the four classes of the fool. 
Tell me which chapters you would look in for the immoral woman. Tell me which chapters you would look in for the intoxicating wife. Give me a summary of what the Bible teaches about what it means to really fear the Lord. You think that lady could pass that test? Most of you are going, I don't don't want to take that test. Well, what I want you to learn is the Lord wants us to always be humble students that realize there's always more to learn. Every time I open up God's word, it's like the wisdom of God. There's an insight. There's a direction. One of the qualities, if you get to be 90 years old, the Lord Jesus wants you to have open ears. Jesus said this, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. And what it's saying that you as parents, one of the things you want to do, if you're raising your kids, no matter what age they might be, if you're a grandparent, the Lord wants the book of Proverbs to become a book that's internalized in your heart. Billy Graham started out as a young man. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. He took one chapter a day. And for many, many years, probably now for about 60 years of his life, every single day, he's read through a chapter of the Proverbs. You say, how did he resist immorality as an evangelist? How did he resist the dangers of materialism as an evangelist? How did he stay focused on God? How did he stay focused on real reverence? How was he still proclaiming the gospel? Because every single day, he opened his ears to the wisdom of God. That's my prayer for every one of our children, every one of our teen, every one of our college students. I want you to know, I want you to internalize skillful living. This skillful living only is going to come as you listen to the positive instruction of God's word and the negative reproof. And then you can sail through life. You'll be able to sail straight. You'll be wide and skillful. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that we look at the introduction of the book of Proverbs, that wisdom is not just for adults or not just for grandparents, but it's for kids. And, Lord, I just ask you that we will think really seriously about how we're training our young people. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be able to learn, be able to stand on Solomon's shoulders so that we won't have to be scarred in a school of experience like he was. Lord, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit now, Lord, we learned last week that we need to walk in the Spirit. And it's only as we walk in the Spirit that we'll have a receptive heart towards the wisdom that Solomon is teaching us. And Lord, the Holy Spirit needs to be the one that gives us receptive ears and gives us the desire to get this truth into our hands and into our feet. And so I ask you now, Lord, that you would help us to think deeply about who we're listening to, who we think is wise, who we think is foolish, who we think we can guide us in life. I'd ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would take this teaching from your word to move some children to begin to really listen to the proverbial wisdom, to cause some moms and dads to really take these chapters, chapter by chapter, and begin to learn what this book is saying. I'd ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would help my life and the life of my brothers and sisters to be skillful because we listen to your wise guidance and your direction. Lord, we can't do that just by listening on Sunday morning. But Lord, I pray that some of my brothers and sisters would make a recommitment to every single day carving out time where they can read a book like Proverbs. In order to read one of those chapters, they need to carve out some time. I'd ask you, Lord, that we'll turn off the TV, turn off the stereo, turn off the radio, Uh, turn off all the internet and I pray that we'll just stop and listen to your word so that we can become a skillful people that will be worldly wise but innocent. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, 
please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.